Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Uh, We started this study about 12 weeks ago. And if you open to Matthew chapter 5 and you just start reading, uh, the first thing you're going to encounter is something that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in in spirit, uh, so on and so forth. And we said over and over again, that is the characteristics of a Christian. That's not the way you get saved. It's what you get after you get saved. That's what God produces inside of you. So it's a characteristic of a kingdom citizen. And then, once we got through that, we got to the two metaphors that Jesus gave us that defines the purpose of a Christian, which is you are to be uh, the salt of the earth and the light of this world. So the Beatitudes tell us who we are in the kingdom, and the, uh, the salt and light metaphors tell us our purpose in the kingdom. Now, here's the thing. If you and I want to live the kingdom life, if we want to be that kind of person then you have to predicate it. You have to found your life. You have to base it on an absolute commitment to the truth of the Bible. There is no other other way. And I'm talking about the Old Testament and the New. Now, here's why. I want you to read this scripture with me. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. This is Paul. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be, say it with me, complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as a Christian, you and I should strive to be complete, yes? Every day that goes by, we should strive to be a more mature Christian, to to exhibit more wisdom in our life, to grow in knowledge, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. We're never going to be perfect, but we're growing, we're maturing, we're, we're getting to be complete. Folks, you can't do that without all Scripture. You can't do it without all Scripture. It's like a man that says he wants to be an expert in mathematics. And he learns his addition, and he learns subtraction, and he learns multiplication, and he learns division, and he says, you know, I don't want to mess with that algebra stuff or trigonometry or calculus. You may know something about math, but you're never going to be an expert in math because you've restricted yourself to be this because you wouldn't look at that. Well, that's the same thing. If you go into the Scripture and you say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that really happened. I don't believe that applies to to our modern day. You'll never be a complete Christian. Because you just restricted yourself. You See, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, so that you may be complete. Now, let me tell you, when Paul wrote that, there was no New Testament. I said when Paul wrote that, there was no New Testament. Now, Paul was writing the New Testament, and I I, I 100% believe Paul knew exactly what he was doing, and I certainly believe that that means that the New Testament, it applies to the New Testament. Let me tell you, I'm 100% certain it absolutely applies to the Old Testament because that was the Scripture that Paul had sitting in front of him. Yet today, I'm afraid that we live in an age where most Christians really don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Listen, we love the stories, don't we? 
you know, Joseph in the coat of many colors and Jonah in the well and David and Goliath and we teach him in Sunday school and everybody loves those stories. But if I came to you and said, what, what purpose does the Old Testament serve in your life? I'm afraid that most Christians can't answer that question. They just don't know what do we make of that part of the Bible. But it's even worse. As I said last week, we got people in this world today that are calling themselves Christians, that call themselves believers, and yet they don't believe in the truthfulness of the Bible. They don't believe that God created this earth in six days. They don't believe that there was a, a, a worldwide flood where the waters covered the face of the earth, as the Bible says. They don't believe that happened. They don't believe there was an actual man named Abraham or a, an actual man named Moses that led the children of Israel across the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. They don't believe those things even happened, yet they call themselves believers. But it's even worse than that. There are people today who call themselves Christians, who call themselves believers, and they somehow think that the God of the Old Testament has changed. That that God in the Old Testament that destroyed cities, that destroyed nations because of sin, somehow He's just changed His mind. That those things that the Old Testament that He pointed to and called an abomination, that somehow this God is more progressive. That He realized, you know what, all, all that stuff, man, it's, I, I was wrong. It's, it's as long as you love each other. I mean, little, people believe that call themselves Christians and believers, and they think that the God of the Old Testament has changed. Now, here's what's in front of us today. The question, how are we as Christians to view the Old Testament? Well, I answered this question last week. We need to look at it the same as Jesus did. You don't want to be caught on Judgment Day thinking differently than He did. Whatever Jesus thought about the Old Testament is what we need to think. He is our measure. He is our benchmark. He is, he is what we go by, right? So whatever Jesus thought about the Old Testament, that's what I want to think about the Old Testament. And see, this is why this scripture, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, is so, so, so very important. And this is why we're stopping and taking two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it takes to cover it. Because you see, on that mountain some 2,000 years ago, Jesus faced a group of people who thought He was going to do away with the Old Testament. They thought that He was going to usher in something new that changed the principles and changed the standards and, and, and He was just going to revolutionize and abolish the Old Testament. These are Jesus' words to people that thought like that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, and by the way, when Jesus says that, it's like us saying you can take it to the bank. Jesus said, truly I say to you, heaven and earth may pass away, not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. An iota was the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is saying not one letter. Not one little Period. Not one dot will pass from that Old Testament until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Folks, he's talking about the Old Testament. 
For I tell you, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus here says three things about the Old Testament. The first thing he says is that he fulfills it. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment because that is an incredible statement. The second thing he says is that the Old Testament will endure to the end of time. And the third thing he says is, most of us, is absolutely shocking. And that is, is he's saying that our rewards in heaven, our status in heaven, will be based on our response to the Old Testament. That's exactly what he said. He's not talk, he was talking about the Old Testament. You, you tell peach people to relax to one of these least commands and you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But you teach people to obey the commands and, 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 and you obey those commands, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, could, I just don't have time to cover all of those tonight, so we'll have to wait until next week to cover number two and three. But tonight we're going to cover the first one, and that is Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Let's read verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think, because that's what they thought. They thought he was going to do away with the Old Testament. By the way, that's what a lot of people today think. That Old Testament don't mean anything anymore. Jesus said, Don't think that way. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Listen, I, that's an incredible statement. Every time I read something like this, I, I, I think of C.S. Lewis and his quote. He said, when it comes to Jesus, there are three options. One, when a man that says that kind of... You know what he said? You know that holy scripture? You know that temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the holy days and all of that stuff? That was about me. Now, listen, a man that says that is one of three things. He's either Looney Tune crazy, he's evil, or he's God. Those are your three options. He's either crazy as a June bug, he's a demon from hell, or he's the son of God himself. Those are your three options. He don't leave you any other. Don't give me this thing of him being a great teacher. Great teachers don't say those kind of things. He's crazy, he's evil, or he's the son of God. Now, he says, I have come to fulfill this holy book. Now, it helps us to understand what he means by the word fulfill. Fulfill has the idea of completing something. For example, I might say to you, you and me might get into a contract, and you say, I've, you know, if you do a certain amount of work, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money. And at the end of the day, I might come to you and say, I've fulfilled the contract, right? And the con- it's done. It's over. It's, we've, uh, we've brought it to completion. We've, we've accomplished what we set out to do. Or let me give you another one. I want you to think for a moment of an acorn. This is something we're real familiar with. Just go out for a, a walk in the woods today, and uh, the acorns are just are everywhere. Think about an acorn for a moment. There are two ways that I can make an acorn cease to exist. So let's say I've got a little acorn. I, I just want to, to, to get rid of this acorn. I want it to cease to exist. There's two ways I can do that. The first way I can do it is I can just destroy it. I can, I can burn it in a fire. I can smash it with a hammer into a million pieces. I can, I can blow it up with a bomb and, and, and vaporize it. 
basically when I'm done, that acorn no longer exists. Everybody with me? But then there's a second way. I can take that acorn, I can plant it in the ground, and out of that ground comes an oak tree. Now, by the way, when you do that, that acorn no longer exists. You can't find it. It's gone. Yet that acorn became what it was always meant to be. It fulfilled its purpose. It it completed its task. You see, that's exactly the relationship with Christ in the law. He didn't, see, Christ didn't come in and draw a line and say, guys, listen, me and the Father have been talking about this, and, and that Old Testament that was plan A, it just didn't work. We did our best. We, 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 we tried to give you all the rules and stuff, and you guys just, so we're going we're gonna to throw that away, and we're going to start over with something new. That's not what he did. What he did is he walked on the scene, and he said the law, go back those thousands of years, all the way back to Genesis, and think about all the history of the Jewish people and the, and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the holy days and all the prophets and all of that. It was up till now, but now I'm here. All of that was bringing you to this day. That was fulfilling its purpose, which was to get you here, to bring you to me. So the law is, is, goes away in a sense, but not because we just did away with it, because it fulfilled its purpose. Now, how did he do that? How did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, I'm going to give you five ways. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is like drinking from a fire hose. There is so much in these verses. In fact, this first one here, just the idea of him fulfilling prophecy, I I could do an entire, probably two lessons on this, but we just don't have time to do it. So I'm going to give you five ways that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Number one, He fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you a few prophecies that he fulfilled. This is just scratching the surface. If you really want to see the the prophecies, just go to Google. uh, Type in something like Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. There are numerous websites out there that will give you list after list after list. I don't have time tonight to go through all of them, but they're out there. So I'm just going to give you a few the, the, the prophecy said that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was prophesied that he would come from the direct lineage of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that when he got here he would speak in parables, that he would be despised and rejected of men, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would have his hands and feet pierced, that he would be given gall and vinegar, that none of his bones would be broken, that he would die with the wicked, that he would be buried on the same day that he died, that he would be buried in a rich rich man's tomb and his body would not suffer corruption. That's just a few. Conservatively, conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies. 300. In fact, the number is somewhere probably around 365. But just to be conservative, he fulfilled 300. Now listen, folks, this is a big deal. We've heard this over the years, and sometimes we don't even think about it. But this is a big deal. Do you know what the odds... By the way, mathematicians have calculated this, the odds of probability. Do you know what the odds are that he would fulfill eight? Just eight. The odds that he would fulfill eight is one in ten to the seventeen. That is one in one hundred million million. 
By the way, the odds of winning the Powerball are 1 in 292 million. The odds of him fulfilling eight, just eight, one in a hundred million million. What about the odds of him fulfilling 48? That's one in one followed by 157 zeros. I don't even know what that number is. That's only 48. That's only 16%. And he fulfilled 300 of them. That's a big deal. By the way, guys, this is why the Dead Sea Scrolls, I've told you this before, this is why the Dead Sea Scrolls are such a big deal. Because for the longest time, the oldest copy we had of the Old Testament was after Jesus. So a lot of people, for example, Psalms 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And that was such an obvious reference to Jesus that a lot of people looked at it and first of all, they argued that that's not what it really meant. And then even those that said, yeah, that's what it really says, they argued that somebody wrote it after Jesus died, after the fact. And then one day in 1947, a little shepherd boy throws a rock, hears something break, goes down in a cave and finds the Dead Sea Scrolls and they unwrap them and there is the whole book of Isaiah. There is the whole book of Psalms. And guess what it said? They pierced my hands and my feet. And it was written over a 100 years before Jesus was even born. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls. And by the way, they still won't believe. They still won't believe. I want to give you, I want to give you something from Peter. I love this. Peter is about to die. He knows that he's fixing to be martyred. And he writes one final letter. We know this letter is Second Peter. And he's writing this letter to, to, the, to these people. And he's saying, man, I just want to remind you, I'm about to die. And by the way, Jesus, he said, Jesus told me. Jesus came to him and said, get ready. You're, 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 you're fixing to give your life. So he writes this letter and he says, and you can go read it in Second Peter. He says, I want to remind you just one more time of how great Jesus is. I want to remind you that I was there on the mountain and I saw him. I saw him transfigured. I saw him with Moses and Elijah. I heard with my own ear the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then Peter says this, but you have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter said, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. I I can tell you what I saw, but you need to listen to the prophets. The prophets speak under under the influence of God. So so these these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it's a big deal. And that's one way that he fulfilled the Old Testament. Here's the second way. He fulfills the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. Jesus in John chapter 5 made this statement. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. By the way, when he made that statement, there is no New Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, you search the Old Testament, and it is the Old Testament that speaks about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he said, go read those five books. It's about me. 
It's all about me. Well, now listen, if you go back to the Old Testament, you don't find the name Jesus, right? So what is he talking about? You see, the Old Testament was full of what we call shadows of the coming Messiah. And they were put there in order to prepare the people for His coming. Now, I love this analogy because it's something that's simple to all of us. We're all familiar with shadows, and we understand that when you see a shadow, it's not the real thing, but what it does, it tells you there's a real thing, right? The shadow, you can't touch it, you can't put your arms around it, it's not reality, but the thing that is reality, it's pointing back to that thing. Now, I don't just make this up. This term, shadows, is used by the New Testament. For example, the book of Colossians chapter 2, this is the Apostle Paul. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Now, now, Again, watch what he's saying. When you see things in the Old Testament like the food laws, when you see things in the Old Testament like the holy days, when you see things in the Old Testament like the Sabbath, Paul says they're just a shadow, but they're pointing to the real thing, which is Jesus Christ. See, once the real thing walks on the stage, you don't need the shadows anymore. Now, I want tonight to just give you, again, we could stay here for weeks going through the Old Testament and looking at all these shadows, but I just want to give you three examples. Let's start out. Paul mentions three things, festival days, uh, food laws, food and drink, and he mentions the Sabbath. I want to look at those three things. Let's look at one example of a festival day. Uh, there is a day that the Jews celebrate called the Day of Atonement. You, you may have heard it referred to as Yom Kippur. And on that day, every year, the high priest would sacrifice a bull and a goat for the sins of the people. And, and what it was trying to teach them was, look, you've sinned. The sin is yours. But God is going to accept a substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. And so every year, God would accept a bull and a goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Every year. You see, everybody with me, they should die for their own sins. But God allows something called substitutionary atonement. But they had to do it every year, every year, every year, because it was just temporary. It couldn't take away the eternal. It couldn't, it couldn't give them eternal forgiveness. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer of Hebrews says that was just a shadow. It was pointing to something that was coming. Pointing that to something that was coming. Pointing to something that was coming. What was that something? It was Christ. Hebrews 9 says this, But when Christ appeared, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, by, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, therefore securing an eternal redemption. Folks, listen, and I want you to listen to me very carefully because I'm going to make this statement several times. The God of the Old Testament has not changed. He hadn't changed. You, you got sin in your life. To get forgiveness for that, blood has to be shed. 
There's, there's no way around it. The God of the Old Testament hadn't changed his mind. It has not changed his mind. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of bulls and goats. But now that Christ is here, the only forgiveness is found in his blood. That's it. That's the only way. But God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his principles. He hasn't changed his standards. No, he hasn't lowered any of that. It's just that the reality has come on the scene. Christ is the reality in that substitutionary atonement is now found only in Him. Listen, you can chase after Buddha. You can chase after Muhammad. You can chase after Joseph Smith. You can chase after uh, whoever you want to chase after. Forgiveness is found in one man and one man only, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He is the reality that the Old Testament pointed to. Paul goes on to say that the Sabbath day is a shadow. Now this, I just think this is absolutely amazing. For those of you that may be new to church, you you hear sometimes this term Sabbath. And you think, well, that's a weird word. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word sabbat. And the word sabbat basically means to cease from working. Okay, you're going along, you're doing some work, and sabbat means you just stop. You you stop working. You, You cease from your labors. Now, as hopefully everybody in the room knows, the origin of the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation. God creates everything there is in six days, and it says that on the seventh day He rested from the work which He had made. So He institutes the Sabbath on the the seventh day. By the way, if you go back to the day before, at the end of the day, it says God looked at everything and said it is very good. Not just good, it is very good. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no decay, and God ceases from His work and stops. Now listen, God's not tired. God's omnipotent, He's all-powerful. He he doesn't run out of energy like like a human being. So when it says He rested or He sabbat, what it's saying is He just ceased from His labors. He stopped working. Now listen, centuries later... He will give upon Mount Sinai, He will give Moses the Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments you'll find in Exodus 20 is this. Remember the Sabbat. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. On that day you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter or male or female servant or your animals or any foreigners residing in your town. And He said just on the seventh day you stop working. Folks, the Sabbath was a shadow, according to the Apostle Paul. And it pointed to the fact that one day Jesus Christ would become our Sabbath rest. And you may say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 says this, For we who have believed, talking about believing in Jesus, we enter that rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. You want to enter the Sabbath rest of Jesus? You put your faith in Him. You see the idea here is you stop working. You quit laboring. You you stop trying to earn your way. You stop trying to be good. You stop trying to earn His favor and you cease from your labors. And you put your faith in Jesus and you enter His rest. Don't believe... Keep working, keep trying to do it yourself, and you will fail to enter. Listen to Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, there is no other Sabbath rest besides Jesus. He is God's plan for you and I to stop laboring for righteousness, to stop laboring to earn his favor. You just cease from your works and you put your faith in him. Isn't that amazing? The amazing thing about that is God on the seventh day when there's no sin, there's no decay, there's no death, God goes ahead and sets up the shadow that would one day point to His Son. Listen, don't tell me He didn't know what was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And as I've said often, He considered worth it to be able to one day present a people, present a bride to His Son. Let me tell you, folks, the God of the Old Testament, listen to me closely, hasn't changed. There's still a Sabbath. There's still a Sabbath rest, but it's not a day. God doesn't care what day we get together on. The Sabbath was on a Saturday. We get together on a Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. If we just decided next week we want to meet together on a Tuesday, God doesn't care. Doesn't care. It's not about a day. It's about a person. It's about a relationship. It's about entering into His rest. Let me tell you, though, don't you think for a moment that God doesn't take it serious? Let me give you a a story from the Old Testament, Numbers 15. The people are out in the wilderness. They're still wandering around out there. And they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because they had not been made clear to them what should be done. So Moses goes to God and says, what do I do with this guy? He was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. God said, kill him. Kill him. And they took him outside the camp and they stoned him to death. Now let me tell you two things about that man. First of all, he was caught unprepared. You don't want to be caught unprepared. He should have gathered twice the sticks on Thursday or twice the sticks on Friday and been ready, but he didn't care. He disrespected God. He disrespected God's command. And when you do that, the penalty was death. Listen to me, folks. So it will be to all men and all women who reject God's Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. God has he sent His Son, gave His only Son to provide a Sabbath rest. And if we reject that, the, the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't. The Sabbath is in Him, but God takes it just as serious, if not more, than He did the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. All right, got to pick it up here. Let's talk about the food laws. Now, there are some things that's easy to see. If I went through the Old Testament and and you might say, well, what about the priesthood? I'd say, well, Jesus is our high priest. We don't need the priesthood anymore. What about the sacrifices? Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We don't need those anymore. What about the temple? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We don't need a place. We worship Him wherever He is. What about the holy days? We don't need them anymore because they were all geared around sacrifices and atonements and all these other things. We don't need those. What about the Sabbath? I just told you. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. But how in the world does Jesus fulfill the food laws? 
Now, for some of you, you may not be familiar with the food laws. How many of y'all started a Bible reading program in 2023? Anybody going to read through the Bible? Well, in a couple months, you're going to come to Leviticus, right? And boy, you're just going to slow down. <laughs> you know, Genesis is awesome, and Exodus, yeah, man, I got a lot of stuff going on. All of a sudden, boom. And you're reading Leviticus, and you're like, oh, man, this is killing me here, right? Right in the middle of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11, is the food laws, where God set the Jews apart. He said, you can eat certain things and certain things you can't. And, for example, you couldn't eat pork, you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat insects, you can't eat scavenger birds like vultures or even like hawks or eagles. You can't eat fish without scales. You can eat brim and bass, you can't eat catfish. The, the rule was that if an animal had a cloven hoof and they chewed the cud, they ate grass, you could eat them. So a deer, you could eat because they had a cloven hoof and they ate grass. A pig had a cloven hoof, but they don't eat grass. You can't eat them. A rabbit might eat grass, but he don't have a cloven hoof. You can't eat him. So just these weird food laws, right? And people over the years have tried to find reasons behind them. And they think, you know, well, maybe it's because pork was high in cholesterol and God knew all that. And listen, I don't know about any of that. I don't care about any of that. I'm going to eat pork and shrimp and catfish and all of those things. I don't care, okay? And maybe there was some reasons. I don't care. I think, in fact, I think it misses the entire point if you focus on that. Let me tell you, the main theme of Leviticus is holiness. That's a no-doubter. The word holiness means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be distinct. God is holy. There's nobody like Him. And God expected His people, the Jews, to be holy. They, they were to be different from all the nations around them. Now, I know that because right in the middle of Leviticus, God says this is what it's all about. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I'm holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy. Be different. Be distinct. Be set apart because that's who I am. So whatever else somebody may want to say about the food laws, let me tell you, holiness, there is no doubt, is the overarching principle behind them. God is holy and He wants His people to be holy even down to the very things that they ate. Now, there were some very practical advantages to this back then. For example, you couldn't just go over to the Gentiles' house and eat, okay? Because you didn't eat what they ate. In fact, even if they put something on the table in front of you that was in your list, you still couldn't eat it because it had to be killed a certain way. So, so basically what it did is it prevented... Jews and Gentiles, from eating together. Just, you just couldn't do it. I mean, it just, it, it just wouldn't work. Beyond that, as a, it was, as a physical reminder, the fact that every day you thought, I, I can't eat what they eat, it was a physical reminder that you were also not only to avoid the foods they ate, but you were to avoid the moral and spiritual uncleanness of those tribes and those nations as Well, now, let's come to the New Testament. This is Jesus in Mark chapter 7. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And Mark adds this comment, Thus he declared all foods clean. 
So Jesus walks on the stage and basically says, yeah, you know all those laws? That can't defile you. What you eat can't defile you. It just goes into your stomach and then it's expelled. Now watch what he goes on to say. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All the evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now I want you to listen to me. The God of the Old Testament has not changed. He still requires holiness. He still requires a people that are different, that are distinct, that are set apart from the unbelievers around them. Hebrews 12, 14, by the way, tells us this, strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness without which no one will see God. You won't see God if you're not different, if you're not distinct, if you're not set apart. But Jesus, what he's saying here is it's not about food anymore. It's not about the outside things. That was fine then when you didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That was fine then when you didn't have a new heart. But I've come to change your heart. And I've come to change your mind. And the holiness that you're going to have now is not going to be this thing necessarily of the outside. It's going to be a holiness that emanates from the inside. Listen to Ephesians 4. Paul says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he doesn't say, don't eat what they eat. Watch what he says. Don't walk as they do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. They got futile thinking and they got hard hearts. And Paul says, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Number three, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law by keeping it perfectly. And I'll make these three go pretty fast. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law means that Jesus was born subject to the law. He, was, he had to keep it, just like any other Jewish boy, just like any other Jewish man. In order to keep the law, He had to be born of a woman. He had to be circumcised. That was the law. You don't do that unless you're born of a woman. He had to honor His mother and father. Couldn't do that without parents. So he had to be born of a woman to be subject to the law. And he had to keep the law just like everybody. And folks, keep it, he did. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, he fulfilled the law by being the first person to keep it absolutely perfectly. Folks, listen to me. The God of the Old Testament has not changed. He requires perfect righteousness to enter His kingdom. He requires perfect righteousness to enter His kingdom. In fact, Jesus will tell us in just a few verses from now, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Number four, he did the thing that he did not have to do. He fulfilled the Old Testament penalty for sin. Ephesians 1, 7 says, And in him we have redemption through his blood. He went to a cross 
as the, he, he was perfect. He was without sin. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was a spotless lamb. And he gave his life as a substitutionary atonement for you and for me and for the whole world. He did that. See, the law required blood to be shed. And Jesus stepped up and said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Listen, the God of the Old Testament, folks, has not changed. Death is still the penalty for sin. The man who sins dies. The woman who sins dies. The question is, for each and every person in this room and for each and every person in this world, are you going to pay for your own sin? Or are you going to let Jesus pay for it? Are you going to put your faith in Him? Are you going to make Him your Lord and Savior? And you're going to let His blood cover you? Or are you going to go it on your own? But in the end... Death is still required. God hasn't changed. God doesn't wink at sin. Don't, don't fool yourself. Romans 6.23 says that in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number five, and I close with this. He fulfills the Old Testament by giving us the ability to keep God's laws. Let me give you two prophecies. First from Ezekiel 36. God says, there's coming a day where I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put within you and I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah puts it this way, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law inside them and I'll write it on their heart. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order... Listen, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit in them. They just had them. They had wicked hearts, hard hearts. And they could not keep the law. They didn't want to keep the law. And God says, there's going to come a day when I'm going to give you a new heart. You're going to be born again. And I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. And I'm going to write my law, not on the outside. I'm going to make it a part of who you are. I'm going to make you like me. Why? In order that you can fulfill the law. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, what does that mean? God expects me to fulfill the law. What does He expect me to do? Does He expect me to follow all those commands? No. A lawyer came to Jesus in Matthew 22. He asked Him a question. He said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is just explanation for how to love God and how to love one another. That's it. Those are the two things He wants us to do. Love God, love one another. Folks, listen, the God of the Old Testament hasn't changed. He still expects us to fulfill His law. Paul says in Romans 13, love is the fulfillment of the law. Listen, we can go through life loving God, loving our neighbor and we're doing everything that God has asked us to do. It's everything He's asked us to do. One final question, and I close. 
What's the relationship of the Christian to the Old Testament? We're going to be talking about this. Um, I'm sure some of you are curious about the statement that Jesus made um, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 19, and we'll, we'll cover that next week. But what is the relationship of the Christian to the Old, Te- Old Testament? Well, first of all, we are certainly not under the law in the sense that we have to depend upon it for salvation. Um, Matthew 5:19. Okay, well, let me go back for a second. Let's be clear. We don't depend on the law. We are justified and saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The law, Paul says in Galatians 3, was our guardian until uh, faith came. Once faith came, we're not under the law anymore. We don't need a guardian anymore. We can be led by the Spirit of God and led by His Word, love one another, love God. That's all that's required of us. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean you can do anything you want to do. Let me say it again. That doesn't mean, as a Christian, you can just do anything you want to do. In fact, let's read verse 19 again. Therefore, Jesus said, whoever relaxes one of the least of those commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Next week, we'll tell you exactly what he means by that statement. I'll close with this. What should we think about the Old Testament? I'm going to give you three things. Number one, folks, it's true. It's truth. Jesus said not one letter, not one dot is going to pass away. He didn't say, hey, man, most of those stories are true, but some of that stuff was just fed legends or fairy tales. No. He said it's true. And we need to treat it as true. Number two, it's profitable. We should be in the Old Testament. We should be reading the Old Testament. We should be studying the Old Testament. And here's one of the reasons why. Because it glorifies Jesus. I mean, that would change every one of us if we would go to that Old Testament and read, thinking, what does this tell me about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How does this point to Jesus? How, does this, how is this a shadow of, what, of the reality that's going to come? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. For your word, what a, uh, I, I'm just, every time I go through one of these, I'm just astounded at your truth. I'm astounded tonight, the fact that at creation, you set up a Sabbath day to be a shadow for your son. You already knew what was coming. You were already putting the pieces together. You are a mighty and great and sovereign God. And God, any God like that, that can see where things are going, that, that speaks what's going to happen, that's, that, that, speaks 300 plus prophecies that are fulfilled in his son against all odds a god like that surely surely preserves his word a god like that can create an earth in six days a god like that can flood the flood the earth with waters a god like that can part a sea a god like that can make an axe head float a god like that can open blind eyes heal crippled hands open deaf ears, and a God like that can give us a new heart. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for giving us the ability, the opportunity, the chance to know you and to to look into your word and see things that literally those prophets of years ago yearned to know. And we get to stand up and, and just teach them to everybody. What an incredible 
incredible thing. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray for this Sunday, God. We pray that even now you'd prepare the hearts that are going to come. And as always, Lord, if there's someone in this room tonight, if there's someone in this room on Sunday that doesn't know you as I do, then God, save them. Open their eyes, God. Give them a new heart. Do a miracle in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all. You all are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.